bitter or better. What is, what is the book of Malachi all about? Well, Malachi is a prophet. And if you are in your Bibles at the book of Malachi, you will probably notice that he is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's the last prophet of Israel before Jesus came. The next prophet that burst on the scene in the history of, of Israel is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And Malachi is actually going to talk about John the Baptist before his message is over. But we're looking at the first chapter, and Malachi is an interesting book because Malachi's uh, audience, you know, it's a, it's a dialogue between God and his people. And you see this repetition throughout the book that God says, and then you'll see this, but you say. God says, but you say. And really what it is is that the people of Israel are in a very, very bitter place. And we're going to find out why in just a moment. They're bitter. They're bitterly angry at God. I looked up the definition of bitter in the, in the English dictionary, and it means this. Angry, hurt, or resentful because of one's bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment. Angry, hurt, and resentful. So like bitterness is like three sins in one. <laughs> angry, hurt, and resentful over your experiences, over where you are in life. And here's the reality. Here's the, here's the fact of, of everybody's life in this place. You can't control what happens to you. You can't control how people treat you, and you can't control the, the environment around you. Lord knows some of you know this because you have tried your hardest to control everything, and it never works out. You can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. That's what this message is for. That's what this series is about. Are you going to look at your life experiences and are you going to get bitter? Are you going to start asking God bitter questions? Where are you? I don't understand. Life is so fair or unfair. Or are you going to start getting better and seeing that in all things, God is working for your good, that there is nothing that he sends your way that was not intended to make you better if you just hang in and trust his promises. And, and today I want to look at a situation of life that's not unfamiliar to all of us. We've all gone through this. And you know, it's not, it's not one of those big tragic moments, right? It's not like cancer or the death of a loved one uh, or a family member. It's, it's not like a, a job loss. Really, Israel's history at this point in the book of Malachi Nothing really bad has happened. No tragedy, no national catastrophe, no you know, Wall, Wall Street market drop, no financial fiasco, no hurricane sweeping their homes away, no enemy coming in to take them captive. In fact, they're just in a relatively time, a, a, a time of relative peace. And secondly, there's not really like heinous sin. They're not... They're not sacrificing their babies to Molech and to the gods of, of the other nations like they used to before, way back in, in, in their history. They're not, they're not um, exhibiting rampant immorality. No. It's just a time where, where they're just stuck. They're just stuck. It's not unfamiliar to all of us. Like, have you ever, have you ever done that? Maybe you're there. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're just stuck, where life isn't exciting anymore. Used to be exciting, not so much now. 
The only way, there's like no word for it. There's only just an expression for it. Here's the expression. We did this last night as a group activity. The expression for this kind of status, this, this, this season of Malachi's audience's life is this, just bleh. How many have ever experienced just bleh? Yeah. yeah. Everybody do it with me because it's fun. Don't spit on the person in front of you, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Bleh. I mean, you, you've been there, right? Like the marriage, when you first got married, it was, oh, wow, we're married. <laughs> and then for a few years go by and it's just bleh. You, you, you get your first kid, and the first kid's so beautiful, and, and really, he's not beautiful. He's a raisin. He's a raisin. You think he's beautiful because he's yours, and whatever, and so, you know, you just, oh, he's so beautiful. And then he becomes a teenager. Come on, teenager parents. It's just, Bleh. take a little more to the you get, to get the new job, and the job was exciting at first, and then you get reports due, and you get time with your frustrating coworkers, and you, and, you, and you don't like your boss anymore. And then the job that was once wonderful, beautiful blessing from God is now just, what? <laughs> Very good. You're getting good at this. That's how life can be, right? And sometimes it can be like that in our relationship with God. It can. Where when we first came to Christ, we were so in enraptured in his love, so enamored with his grace, so happy to come to church and be here and worship God. And then before we know it, without even, without even feeling it, it's just, and that's where they are. It's like the ocean. It's like the ocean. Whenever I bring my kids to the ocean, my kids are so funny. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They, they, they complain when the pool is 70 degrees, and they're like, the ocean's like 60. They're like, yeah, in the ocean. And they, they just love the waves, right? But how many know you sit in the waves long enough, and before you know it, you turn to read your book for a moment, and then you turn, and they've just drifted. Like down to the other beach. <laughs> Where'd they go? <laughs> Abducted by the waves, right? I mean, that's... That's the, the momentum of our lives sometimes. That's the sway of our situation where we, we don't even realize it, but before we know it, we have settled into a place where we are comfortably Christian, casual about our faith, and no longer experiencing the blessings and the power and the presence of God. And, and that's exactly where Malachi's audience is. Now, I want to explain why. And to explain why I'm going to put a, uh, uh, a timeline of their history on the screen, it's going to be hard to read, but I'll just try to explain it as quickly as I can. Israel started with Abraham over here on the left. I know it's hard to read. I'll just point and tell you which one it is. I'm sorry for the small text, but started with Abraham, and then he grew to be a great nation. Moses drew them out of e Egypt with mighty signs and mighty wonders through the Red Sea. God gave them a king named David. He was a man after God's own heart. The kingdom just exploded. They never lost a battle. Do you know they never lost one single national military battle under David? He was undefeated. And then Solomon made, it, made, made silver as common as stones in Israel. He made the nation super prosperous. And then he built this ornate, beautiful, gorgeous temple. And that's what that picture is right there. And when God, when Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory of the Lord falls in the temple. The cloud fills it. Everybody worships God. They have this mighty revival. Everybody is on fire for God. It's amazing. It looks like the job of God and his people is done. But it's just so funny how success 
breeds contempt. And just after this, they just decline into this spiritual malaise. And they start worshiping the gods around them. And, and then the nation splits in half soon after Solomon, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and then God sends prophets to the northern kingdom, Elijah, Hosea, Amos. Eventually, they go into exile because they're so immoral. They're so godless that God's just like, I can't deal with you anymore. He sends them off to their enemies to get judged. And then the southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer, but God sends prophets to them too. Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah. And then Ezekiel, right after the first deportation to Babylon, God's just had it with his people. He can't stand their complaining and their immorality anymore. And he says, the only way to get your attention, the only way to change you is to judge you and to punish you so that I can wipe out that sin out of you and cleanse you and bring you back to myself. And he hands them over to his enemies. And they go into Babylon for 70 years. And during the time of Babylon, Daniel is, is, is around, and he, he kind of oversees the nation and intercedes for them several times. And, and several times, these Jewish people, this nomadic people from ancient times that, that should have been wiped out, wiped off the face of the earth, they keep having these, these, these close, near breaks with guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these amazing stories of God's miraculous power. And then also a woman named Esther, the beauty queen. She, she doesn't, she, it, the book of Esther is an amazing book because in the book of Esther, God's name isn't even mentioned. It's not even mentioned. But God uses the means and the resources and the minds and the intellects of the people just to keep his people barely alive through this exile. And then he brings them back miraculously. This is, a, this is, I don't understand, I don't think that people understand that the greatest miracle the Bible might be, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, might be the fact that God's people survived 70 years of exile to their enemies. Because in the ancient world, that was unheard of. When one nation dominated another nation, that previous nation was wiped out. I'll prove it to you. Like, we all know some Jews, right? We all have some Jewish people in our lives. Uh, good chance that your doctor's Jewish. Amen. <laughs> right? Um, how many of us know a few Philistines? Anybody here a Moabite? A Hittite? A Jebusite? A Gigabyte? <laughs> right? There's, there's nobody here by those nationalities because this was unheard of for an ancient culture to be captured and then somehow miraculously come back. And in 538 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, he brings them back to the land. And then Haggai tells them, look, you guys, you're getting comfortable. And he says, you got to rebuild the temple. Haggai challenges the people. He says, you got comfy homes, but God has no place to be worshipped. And so a big building campaign, and they build this temple. But honestly, if I was to be really honest, listen, this temple paled in comparison to this temple. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it because their ancestors told them how glorious, how powerful this temple was. And, and when this temple was built, no visible sign of God's glory. No cloud from heaven. And one of the prophets had the audacity to say this famous line. A lot of you probably know this line. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former house. That, they were talking about this temple. And everyone was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's not even close to Solomon's temple. And so it looks like God's promises have been deferred. They aren't coming true. And then Zechariah challenges them to stay true. And Ezra, the priest, challenges them, stay true, stay true to your God because his promises will be fulfilled. His promises are not done with you yet. And Nehemiah comes and he, he brings great national reform to the entire city and the entire nation. 
And then right after him, Malachi. Malachi is the last voice of the Old Testament. And for 400 years, there's going to be silence. And then a guy named John the Baptist is going to show up after the birth of Christ and say, prepare the coming. Prepare you the way for the coming of the Lord. Right here in Malachi's time, you know, there was a little bit of initial excitement about this temple. A little bit. But then they just kind of settle. And they just kind of think, where's God? Where is the God of my fathers who told me about David and Solomon and these mighty works? Where is the God of Moses who divided the Red Sea and brought 10 plagues on Egypt and then fed us wilderness bread and wilderness water and all these mighty signs? Where is that God? And the fact of the matter is, there are no more miraculous signs in the Bible at that time. Like, if, if you were just to look at their life, it would look a lot like ours. Like we don't really see too many miraculous, you know, uh, signs from the powers of heaven coming down and showing up. And, we, and some people say, well, see, that's why I, I would believe. If, if God would show me a sign, I would believe. <laughs> Have you read the Bible? Because every time God shows them a sign, they believe for a little bit, and then they question it. That's exactly what happens in Moses' day. Sign after sign after sign after sign, and God delivers and delivers and delivers, and they just are like, meh, I'm not seeing it. And even Jesus shows up. Even Jesus shows up. The guy walks on water, feeds 5,000 with 12 loaves. The guy raises the dead, raises the stinking dead. After four days in a tomb, Lazarus, come out. He comes walking out. Could you imagine? And it says immediately after that that the Pharisees were like, oh, this is just stupid, man. We got to kill Jesus and Lazarus now. <laughs> what I'm saying is miraculous signs don't always produce belief. In fact, they rarely did in the Bible. In Malachi's time, there's no miraculous sign. And here's the reality. Here's the reality of their spiritual life. They're just bitter because they don't see God's faithfulness and promises fulfilled. Have you been there? Have you been there? I mean, as Americans in 2014, you can watch your world and you can see the news. It's bad, bad, bad. Even in your own personal life, maybe you're just going through a time where there's not really bad immorality in your life. There's not really bad tragedy in your life. You're just in a stale place with God. It's just not what it used to be. What's the word for God, from God, for people like that? We're going to look at that in Malachi. Malachi, let's start. Verse 1. The oracle. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi's name means my messenger. What you're going to know about this book is that it is very personal. It's like a very personal dialogue between God and his people. And he really opens his heart to these people. Now, what you have to understand is that this word oracle in the Hebrew is the word burden. In fact, if you have the New King James Version, you will see that it says the burden, not oracle, but the burden of the word of the Lord. I love that. Do you know why I love that? Because that tells me that God's word to you is not just a message for you. It is his heart toward you. Listen to me, people of God. Your God in heaven does not just love you. He feels for you. He's got a burden. He's got a message that he wants to get off of his chest toward you. It's a burden. I love that. I love that because I hate, I hate the word sermon. 
I hate that word. Sermon. See, you know why I hate word sermons? Because sermon is something from man. A sermon is something that the pastor can give you. Good sermon, pastor. Sermon. The sermon was, a sermon can be cute. A sermon can be good. A sermon can be judged. It was okay. It was a sermon for me. It wasn't really a sermon for me. You can judge a sermon, but listen to me. You can judge a sermon. You can reject a sermon. You can, you can disregard a sermon, but you can't disregard a message from God. There's a phenomenal difference between a sermon and a message, and I never want to be a sermon maker. I don't, I don't want to just give you sermons. I want you to hear from God. Every time we get together, every time we get together, I don't want you walking out of this place saying, the sermon was very nice today. I want you walking out saying, man, I heard from God. I don't know what that was, but it was like he was talking to me. And that's never me talking to you. That's the Holy Spirit of God straight, speaking straight to your heart. And that's what you want. And that's, that's what you want in a church, by the way. You, you never want, you never want staleness. It's, it's why I'm so passionate up here. It, it is. I can never be one of those guys. Okay, everybody. <laughs> Let's open to the book of Malachi. <laughs> I can never do that. I, I start my week on Monday and I get, I get to the office and I'm like, oh God, I got to do it again. <laughs> and then I start to study and the Lord speaks to me and we pray and we talk about the word. And it's amazing how he opens it to my eyes. And then by the time I'm done studying it, it's not that I have to do it again. It's that I got to do it again. I got to speak to you because God, listen, God doesn't just have a word for you. He's got a burden for you, his people. And if you listen to it, he can enliven your heart. He can restore your joy. He can give you hope in the middle of a heart sick moment and bring life to the place of deadness. This is. This is the burden. This is wonderful. Watch what happens. Watch what happens because there's a lot of twists and turns in Malachi. The burden of the word of the Lord. And here's what he has to say to stale people. I have loved you. Whoa. <laughs> Did we hear that right? Because you just told us that they were like offering God like half-hearted worship and they were in a stale place and they were bitter and they were angry and they were resentful and they were hurt about what they had not had yet received from God. And you're going to tell me, Pastor, that the first thing that God has to say to them is, I have loved you. Yeah. God's first word to you, friend, is always, I have loved you. Usually when I, when I prepare a message or when I prepare a message, <laughs> uh, I say, God, what do you want me to tell your people? And nine times out of ten, the answer comes back sweetly through the Holy Spirit's voice. Tell them that I love them. His first word to you is, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. I love the New Living Translation. I have always loved you. I've always loved you. It's not, listen to me, it's not God loves you today and maybe not tomorrow. It's not God is looking at you last week and saying, eh, not so good today. It's, he's not looking at last night, he's not looking at this morning, he's saying right now to every single one of you who was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, I've always loved you. What a sweet word from God. Listen to me, Christian. You gotta get the timing right about your salvation too. You gotta get the timing right. Because God did not start loving you the moment that you raised your hand or said the prayer or came to the altar. God started loving you from be before you were born. 
from the foundations of the world, he is the lamb crucified for you. Before God said, let there be light, he saw you, he knew you, and he created you at just the right time. And then he lovingly guided all the people in your life to push you and nudge you to the place where you dropped to your knees and said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. He didn't start loving you when you started loving him. It's never that case. It's he loved you all the way to himself. And that salvation is is really not climbing the ladder. It's just opening your eyes and seeing for the first time, God loves me. And maybe you've heard that, and maybe you've always thought, yeah, I know God loves me. Of course God loves me, but you've never experienced it. It's never been in here. It's been up here, but it's never been in here. And the salvation moment happens when, when it's no longer head knowledge. Of course God loves me because, you know, he's supposed to love me. It's heart knowledge because God has opened your heart and opened his heart and shown you that in spite of all that you've done, he has always loved you. You have like probably one of those stories, a crazy, you know, conversion story where the, where the I mean, and we have them in this church all the time. We have these crazy conversion stories in this church constantly. It's crazy. Where people are telling us like they're about to commit suicide and they got the phone call as they're about to commit suicide. Like four or five people in the last year from this church, from this location, have told us that's their story. The phone call came at just the right moment. I, I, I uh, I tell you about one guy who's in this church. He's here today. And he was at night online studying this, you know, occultic thing, and he was scared to death, and then and he was getting really deep into it, and then he was so scared that he actually prayed, God, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. And the next day, I called him, and I invited him to church when I saw him the next time. Came to church, got saved, got baptized. Serves like crazy in this church. It's an amazing thing. And you see, it's opening your eyes and seeing how God has always loved you. And, and I don't say that to boast my, my doing because I didn't, I didn't, say, I didn't say, oh, what's that, God? Oh, call him, call him, okay, I'll call him. No, 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 I just wanted something from him. <laughs> so I called him. And then we got together and we talked and he, he got saved. It's just, that's God. It's never me, it's God. Amen. I have always loved you. But now notice their crazy question. Here's the argument. How have you loved us? Ooh, that's bitter. That's bitter. They're like, look, God, I understand that, but I'm looking at my life. I'm looking around, and I don't see your love. And we've all been there. We've all been there. I've been there. You've been there. We all, at, at some point, we just start saying, ugh. You know, why? And we look at other people and we start playing the comparison game. And we start playing the woe is me game. Some people in life, some people in the church have a woe is me attitude constantly. There's just a woe is me spirit. Woe is me. I'm never getting what I should get. I'm never doing what I should do. Why does God bless them and not me? And we say, how have you loved me? Where is the love? And here's the fatal mistake that they were making. Here's what the mistake they were making. Maybe some of you were making. They were judging the eternal God by their temporal circumstances. Never do that. Here's the thing. God sees your life from the beginning to the end. He sees something you can't possibly see. He sees the whole picture, the whole picture. You're like right here. And right here might be a valley. Right here might be your downward trending. You're not getting much 
feeling of the sense of God's presence in you. So you're on a downward trend. But, but God is looking at it like this. And he's always like, don't worry about it. Just because you're down now doesn't mean you're going to stay there. Just, be, just because you, you feel empty right now doesn't mean you're going to stay empty. That eventually, if you faithfully hold on to his promises, that God who sees the beginning from the end, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, that means that he's got the whole thing under his charge and control, that, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion for you, that just because you're on a downward trend doesn't mean that God is done with you yet. And that's what you got to have to put in your heart sometimes. And then God kind of does this crazy thing to, to answer this question. And, and you again, another twist. You don't see it coming from the book of Malachi. It's totally crazy. They say, how have you loved us? What, what, what answer would you expect? Here's God's answer. Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. And then later he says, but I hated Esau. It's like, what? What kind of answer is that, God? What do you mean? What are you talking about, Jacob? We're talking about now. He says, no, no, no. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's take a trip down memory lane. Let's go back to your great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob. Remember him? Remember his brother Esau was older and was supposed to get the, the fatherly blessing? Remember how it was supposed to be Esau? It was always supposed to be Esau. Older brother, right? Like Jacob, younger brother. Esau, father's son, you know, father's favorite. He was supposed to get the father. Esau, hunter, gatherer, man of the wild, man of strength, man of power, man of integrity. I mean, if you want to go hunting, you grab yourself an Esau and you go tear that sucker with your bare hands. And then there's Jacob, mama's boy. Jacob sitting there sewing and crocheting with mom. Making stuffed raviolis. Watching Martha Stewart's got an apron on. Proud mama's boy. If you're gonna start a nation that's gonna take over the world, who you picking? Mama's boy? Or Esau? God says, I'll take the mama's boy. I'll, I'll blow all you away and show you what I can do with the lying, sneaky, conniving, backstabbing Jacob. Remember, Israel, that's your history. That's where you come from. And then let's talk about it from there because it doesn't get any better. Jacob's sons are conniving and thieving and, and, and swindling and, and turning on each other and handing their brother over to slavery. And then they go to Egypt. They become slaves. They cry out to God, this great nation. Now they cry out to God, and, and God miraculously delivers them through the, another reject named Moses. Miraculously, this guy's this guy's tending his father-in-law's sheep. He doesn't even have his own sheep. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. And God shows up and says, Go back to the greatest nation on the face of the earth and tell them, let my people go. And Moses is like, speak. I was like, don't worry about it. I can speak for you. And he goes back and he delivers them through signs and wonders and power and mighty majesty. Ten plagues. River, sea divided. God drowns Pharaoh's sea, uh, Pharaoh's army in the sea. It's crazy. And they get freedom. Finally, they're free. Like four days later, they're worshiping a cow. Where's God? Where's God? Let's make a calf and worship it. That sounds like a good idea. And God still sticks with them. 
brings them into the wilderness, and they start complaining. Like, if you ever read the book of Numbers, it'll, it'll depress you. Just complaining, complaining, complaining. There's no food. God's like, okay, wake up in the morning, there'll be food. Bread everywhere, miraculously. They don't have to bake it. They don't have to buy it. They don't have to prepare it. They're just going to go pick it up and eat it. And a few days later, like, there's no water. I'm a little parched. Too much starch. God's like, all right, you want water? Here's a rock. Go to the rock. Speak to the rock. Water flows out. Amazing. And like, well, the water's good and the bread's good, but that's like prison food, God. That's not good enough. Where's the food? I want some protein for this body. I'm trying to sculpt up. I need some chicken. God's like, fine, chicken from heaven. Quail falls all over the camp and they eat it. It's like, God just keeps blessing them and blessing them and blessing them. And they just keep whining and whining and whining. It's like God is dealing with a three-year-old. For 40 years, but I want, but I want, but I want. Then he brings them to the edge of the promised land. Here it is. Go take it. They're like, but we don't want the promised land. So God continues to deal with this people, wipes out a generation and, and lets the younger generation go in. They get into the land and they start worshiping all kinds of gods and God sends them judges to bring them back and he hands them to their enemies and brings them back and hands them to their enemies and brings them back and God gives them a king because they're like, we want a king like all the other nations around us. We want a king. God says, fine, here's a king. Gives them the greatest king the world has ever seen and still, and still they complain and they turn and they walk away away from God for 400 years. They're, they're worshiping Molech and serving the false gods of the nations around them. And time after time after time, God sends them a message after a message after message saying, come back to me. You have forsaken me and we will make this right. And they don't. Into exile they go. I mean, this is, this is crazy that God would put up with them. All those times, a trip down memory lane and still here in Malachi's time after being exiled and captured by their enemies and brought back miraculously, they're still complaining. But I don't feel God. <laughs> what, what if God did that to you? Just take you back down a trip, down memory lane. <laughs> See, sometimes when we're complaining about our present, we need to think about our past and see where God was faithful every step of the way. How many of you got a season or two where you were just off and God was still on? You got a couple of situations where you got yourself into a heap of mess and still God did not wipe you off the face of the earth and just forgave you and graced you over and over and over again. How many of you relapsed into the same junk that God had saved you from before, you just go back, you're off the wagon, whatever. And I'm not just talking about alcohol. I'm talking about materialism and, 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 and jealousy and bitterness and anger and lust and pride and all that garbage that's in here. And, and still time and time again, God saves us again and again. I mean, what, what would it look like if we just took one of you by random and, and we could have this technology, which probably isn't that far off where we could read your mind and put it up here on the screen and just look at your thoughts from this morning. <laughs> Never mind last week, last night, whatever. Just this morning, like when you were screaming at your wife to get in a stinking car because you're late for church. 
And we just put it up here and said, here's what Joe thought this morning. Look at Joe, he's right over there. And Joe's like, oh, God, oh, no. Sometimes we've got to remember how faithful God is, that where sin abounds, their grace much more abounds. And, and to the extent that you forget that, bitterness, anger, hurt, resentment for what you experience in life. As the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the point I want you to write down in your notes. We're finally at point one. <laughs> so time it out from there. Good luck catching the Patriots game. Okay. <laughs> Number one, God has always loved you more than you have ever loved him. He has always loved you more than you have ever loved him. I saw this on a website somewhere. I don't know where it was. It was funny. It says, smile, God loves you. And after all you've put him through, that's really something. <laughs> the first step to bitterness is to forget God's goodness. God has always loved you more than you've ever loved him. But the tendency and the natural gravitational pull of our hearts is to drift like those children in the ocean and just let life happen and drift away from his love for us and kind of forget it. Don't stay there, friend. Don't stay there. It's a nasty place. And before you know it, the undertow of bitterness just sucks you in, and you're complaining and moaning and groaning. You know, this is why Paul prays for the Ephesians. He goes to the, he goes to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and he wins this church, these people, to the, to the Lord. He establishes this church, and then he leaves them. He spends three years there, and then he leaves them, and then he writes a letter back to them because he had heard some things about them. He had heard that they were starting to lose their love for God. They were starting to lose touch with the love of God. And so he writes a book called Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, and here's what he says, and I love this. He says, I kneel before the Father, and I pray that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp. I want to pray that you have power to grasp what? How wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, you can't even understand it. You can't even comprehend it. It's that great. He says that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I think this is phenomenal because Paul the apostle says, I pray this prayer on my knees. Do you see the apostle Paul? The apostle Paul on his knees. What has driven you to your knees? What has driven you to your knees in your life? A car accident? A friend's cancer diagnosis? A job loss? A marriage? Some problem, probably. Some problem, some difficulty has pushed you here. Here. Here is what pushed Paul here. Nothing tragic, nothing, nothing dramatic, just the fact that they had lost connection with the love that God had for them. And he says, and I, you got to see it. you got to see it because he's on his knees and he's praying, God, I pray that you just show those Ephesian believers how much you love them. I pray that they might grasp just how much you love them because if they know that, if they know how much you love them, then all their problems and all their situations, all their bickering and anger and all that stuff, it'll just fade away in the light of your love. I pray that. Can you see the Apostle Paul pouring out his heart so that you and in our hearts are open to the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of God's love? Did it work? 
Maybe for a little while, but at the end of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 2, God starts rebuking the seven churches of Asia. The first one on his list is the church at Ephesus. What does he say? He says, you've forsaken your first love. You've lost it again. This is why you got to keep coming back to church. You, you got to keep coming back to church and you got to keep having a guy like me yell at you. Say, <laughs> so don't, don't get so falling in love with all this stuff in the world. Don't get so enamored with all your things. Don't get so worried that your friends who don't go to church seem to get ahead. The end of your story hasn't been written yet. Heaven is in your future, everlasting life. Jesus Christ is coming back again. Put your hope in that. Let God feed your spirit once more. Lamentations 3.22, it's a funny verse coming from Lamentations, but it says this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. When you are at your worst, God is still at his best. That's our God. Number two, God always, God's love always keeps me from getting what I deserve. <laughs> it's a confusing one, I know. Some of you are like, yeah, no kidding. I never get what I deserve. You're exactly right. You never get what you deserve. You know why? What you deserved was hell. What you deserved was judgment. What I deserved was hell. You know, I, I talk about that trip down memory lane. If God could take any one of you, if God could take me down memory lane, if we could put my life up here, you'd never come back to this church again. Which is why I'm glad that Apple has yet to invent the <laughs> mind reading thing, right? <laughs> I watch on Tuesday, hallelujah. Okay, uh, and I look at my life, I say, God, I just don't deserve it. I just don't deserve this life. Beautiful wife, beautiful children, beautiful church, growing church in New England. I don't deserve it. Thank you, God, for it. I look at church history. I look at church history. Don't ever read church history. It'll depress you. It'll depress you. The church does not have a great track record, friends. The church was putting heretics to death in the 1500s. When we, we tend to idolize people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, they put heretics to death. And, 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 then, and then you think about the, 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 the before them, the, the church was selling indulgences, fake pieces of the cross to guarantee your entrance into heaven, Take, ripping off the poor people of the land and using, leveraging heaven to do it. You know St. Peter's Basilica, this beautiful, glorious temple, uh, uh, cathedral in, in, in Rome? Built on the sale of indulgences. Built on the sale of indulgences. Christians burned heretics. Christians burned witches in Salem. Christians... Uh, endorsed slavery. Christians kept segregation alive far too long. Christians did that. And still today, Christians leverage political parties to, act, to do their own deal, play, play politics with the Republicans and the Democrats. And God's like, I'm above all that stuff. Christians have a horrible track record. And some people, some people look at the Christian history and they say, you see, that's why I can't believe in God, because look at how bad his people are. And I look at church history and I say, I can't believe how God, how gracious God is. Because look at how bad his people are. <laughs> it's a long tortured history of God's grace and our failings. And God's love always keeps us floating when we should be sinking. 
He says, he says these difficult words. Is not Esau's Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And some of us have a problem with this line. I know, I know you do. I have a problem with it too. But my problem isn't that God hated Esau. My problem is that he loved Jacob. Because <laughs> Jacob didn't deserve it. Neither did you, neither did me, neither did I. Esau, now again, just so you know, the Hebrew idiom here is that he, I hated him. It doesn't mean that he was out to get him. It means that he, reje he, he rejected Esau, the favored son of his father, and preferred Jacob to show forth his glory, to show forth that he was the one that would make the blessing happen. Not Isaac, not Rebekah, he would do it. So, so that's really what it's saying. But he's just saying this, listen, you, um, uh, verse four, he says, if Edom says, and this is, again, we talked about this in Obadiah, Edom is Esau's descendants. He says, if they say, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And some of us, American Christians, American Christians have a serious problem with God talking like this. Like, how dare God talk like that? We're angry forever. What the heck is up with that? God, how dare you? Listen to me very carefully. Don't get so caught up in this world's mentality about what God should be. You know, Americans, we think we're so smart. We think we know what God should be like, right? Why? Reinvented the internet. We've got YouTube. <laughs> it's like, what? You think we think we're all that? You know that every, every world power in the history of world powers thought that they had arrived. You know that, right? Like Hitler thought he was right. A Stalin thought he was right. Napoleon thought he was right. These people, they thought, do you think that America has it right? Someday, some guy's gonna be preaching to a bunch of people saying, do you realize that America at one point thought they had it right? We don't have it right. God has it right, always. Everybody deserves his anger. Everybody. That was grace was available to Edom, but they rejected it over and over and over again. And, they, and, they, and remember in Obadiah, we talked about that they handed the people over to the Babylonians and they, and they were treacherous. You know, one of the number one things that keeps us away from the love of God is, is a lack of awareness of our own sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this. He says... Uh, he says, suppose that you go away on vacation and you leave your house in the care of your neighbor and you give him the keys and you tell him to check your mail. You go away for an extended vacation, say it's a month. You come back. You come back into the house and your neighbor knocks on the door and you answer and he says, hey, listen, I just want to let you know, here's your mail. But by the way, while you were gone, a huge bill, I mean, a bill, a bill came in. It was way past due. And so I just want to let you know I paid it. I paid it for you. And Martin Lloyd-Jones asked this question, how happy would you be about that bill? And the answer is always this. It depends on how big the bill was. If it was a sewer bill, you'd be like, thanks, man. If it was your mortgage three months past due, you'd be like, hallelujah. You see, the biggest problem with us is that we see our sin like a light bill. We see it like a sewer bill. Oh, God, just take care of that over there, please, so I can get on with my life. God says, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. Here's what, your, here's what your sin cost. Your sin cost the precious blood of the spotless, sinless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We come to the table of communion this Wednesday, too. We come to the table of communion to remind ourselves that that's what it took to save us. 
How can we not be excited? How can we not be rejoiceful, rejoicing? How can we not be happy and thankful every day of our lives when we remember that God's love keeps us from getting what we all deserve? And it's like, it's like liberating because when we know that we are eternally loved from God, well, that situation's taken care of. We gotta respond to it. We gotta respond with joy and giving him our best and loving him and, and waking up from our spiritual slumber and, and saying yes to him all over again. And then number three, last thing in your notes, God's love is always eventually visible. Because some of you are saying, well, pastor, I get that, that God saved me from my sins. I get that, I understand that. But my life is really going through some bad stuff right now. Well, you might not see it now, but it's, it's gonna happen. You're going to see, like I said, God, God sees beginning from the end, and you're here, and like just a few steps away, there's a mighty victory coming. There's a mighty deliverance. There's a powerful promise being fulfilled in your life. You don't see it yet, but God does. And sometimes God has to bring you to the place where you are at your end before he comes through. Why does God do it like that? Like when, when Lazarus is sick, why does God wait two days? Why does Jesus wait two days to go see Lazarus? He heard he was sick, he loved Lazarus, and he says, I know he's sick, but I'm waiting. Waits for the man to die and spend a couple days in the tomb and finally gets there and they say, why weren't you here earlier? You know why he wasn't there earlier? Because they had to get to the point where the only way that they could credit Lazarus coming back from the dead was through the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. And that's how it happened. And that's how it happened. And that might be how it happens in your life. Your marriage is going to have to get to that breaking point. Because some of you aren't there yet. You're at the still trying to hold on for my, my rights and my thing. And I'm going to do it. And it's like you're not broken yet. And you got to let God break you. Because if you don't let him break you, eventually life will break you anyway. And life is a lot less merciful than God. Some of you are at that point in your job, you're just not broken yet. You're just not broken. Let God break your heart once again so that you can see his grace in your life. Let me just show you how this works out in Edom's day. They said, we'll rebuild. God says, no, they won't rebuild. I'll tear them down, and your own eyes will see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let me show you how this happens in the, in the, in the, in the story of the Bible. Uh, one of the ancient uh, descendants of Edom, we meet him in the New Testament. His name is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a half Israelite, half Edomite, and the Jews hated him, and he was vicious. And he was on the throne of Judea when Jesus Christ was born. And then he has a grandson, and Jesus grows up. Uh, he has a son, then he has a grandson, and his name is Herod. And Jesus grows up, and he dies, and he resurrects from the dead, and then he sends his church off, and his church starts spreading the message of the gospel all throughout Judea and Samaria. And it stops at Samaria in Acts chapter 12, something happens. Herod puts James to death, the Lord's brother, and then Herod imprisons Peter, and it looks like the Edomites are going to rebuild. It looks like they're gonna win. Look what happens in Acts chapter 20, on a, uh, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, this is right after he imprisoned Peter, right after he killed James. On an appointed day, Herod put his royal robes on, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, look at this, the voice of a God and not a man. It looks like Edom is gonna win, they're gonna rebuild. Very next verse, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But look at this, the gospel increased and multiplied. 
You know what happens in Acts chapter 12? You know what happens in Acts chapter 13? The gospel stretches across the Jewish nation, out of the Jewish nation, and into the Gentiles. Here's what it says. And when the Gentiles heard the word, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Gentiles. Let me tell you what, another way of saying the Gentiles. The people beyond the border of Israel. You and me. Let's go back to Malachi one more time. Your own eyes shall see Edom's, default, Edom's fall. They saw Herod die in front of their eyes. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's amazing to see God's promises fulfilled in the Bible over and over and over and over again. You can't make this stuff up. You can't. And the reason why you're here today is because the promise of Malachi 4, 5 came true. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Can we be thankful? Can we be grateful? Can we look back on our past and say, God, thank you so much for how good you have been to me. Jesus said it like this lastly and finally. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I'll tell you the truth. He will seat them, put an apron on, and serve them as they sit and eat. Are you waiting, anticipating God's best for your life, the Lord's return, heaven in your future? You got no reason to be bitter. You got every reason to be better.